Good evening and welcome to the Sydney Ideas International Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm very pleased to present tonight's lecture on Civil War from Rome to Iraq by Professor David Armitage of Harvard University. David is in Australia as a guest of the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry, or SOFI, at the University of Sydney and the International Program Development Fund, and I would like to thank them for making David available tonight. I'd also like to thank the Seymour Centre for making this uh, smaller theatre available tonight. Um, as you can tell, the venue was fully booked for the International Piano Competition, but they managed to squeeze us in here, so I appreciate their flexibility. Tonight's lecture will run for about 50 minutes and will be followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. Uh, the lecture is being recorded for podcast and filmed by ABC TV for the ABC2 Internet uh, program. Sorry, the in ABC2 Internet TV site for TV and the program on ABC2. Uh, please use the microphone for your questions, which we have a microphone set up at the bottom of the aisle here. And David will be available to sign his book after the event at the Glee Bookstall outside. The next Sydney Ideas lecture will be on the 12th of August and we are very pleased to host a lecture by the well-known Australian public intellectual Clive Hamilton. He will be talking about his new work, The Freedom Paradox, in which he is looking at a post-secular ethics. Then on the 25th of August, we are joined by UK actor and playwright Stephen Burkhoff, who is in Australia for a national tour of his new show, but has agreed to join the Sydney Ideas lecture series for a talk on provocation in the arts. But for tonight, I'd like to welcome Professor Professor of International History at the University of Sydney, who will introduce David Armitage and his work to you. Thank you. Thanks, Meredith. So I expect uh, that many of you have come here tonight because you've read, heard or heard about the outstanding scholar who is addressing you tonight. He has been in high demand in the Australian media, uh, with the press and the radio, and has been playing an important role locally, engaging with postgraduate students who have come from all over Australia and the world to participate in a research colloquium on international history here at the University of Sydney. Of course, the topic that you've come to hear about tonight is one that draws us all in, the history of war, in this case, civil war. Even though we live in a time when Australia has been participating in what are ostensibly civil wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, there has been relatively little discussion about the nature and reason for war itself. To some extent, opposition to war, of which there have also been many recent examples, has invited more reflection on the nature of war, but I would venture that this deeper and longer viewing perspective on war has largely been missing. So tonight's lecture has excited my own engagement precisely because David offers us this perspective. And he does so as an historian versed in the history of the early modern and modern era, whose writing spans political history, the history of political and philosophical thought, intellectual history, imperial history and global history. He is already one of the most prolific and influential historians of his time. His book, A, a Global History of the De Declaration of Independence, which is on sale, I think, outside after uh, this lecture, it was published in 2007 by Harvard University Press. It traces the development of the idea of independence and its language around the globe to America and outwards again. 
It's a tour de de force of narrative, analysis and good old-fashioned information. It offers important insights into the long-durée history of movements for national independence and sovereignty and their fundamentally international context, emphasising what occurs within nations rarely does without some glance to an international or global theatre of ideas and agency. I first met David when he was still finishing off his first book, The Ideological Origins of the British Empire, published in 2000 by Cambridge University Press, a study that was eagerly awaited by those who heard early rumours about its importance long before it was published. And when it appeared, it won the Longman History Today Book of the Year Award and the Percy G. Adams Prize for 18th Century Studies, as well as the Caird Medal from the National Maritime Museum in London. Since that book, he has slowly but surely been rewriting the history of the early modern European world. And as he does, he's changing our understanding of our own world. His new book on the history of civil war is already as eagerly anticipated, and in the meanwhile, he is finishing off a study of the foundations of modern international thought. He has recently published a collection of essays on Greater Britain. He is the editor of British Political Thought in History, Literature and Theory, of the British Atlantic World, of Shakespeare and Political Thought. He is bringing to us new editions of John Locke's Colonial Writings, of Hugo Grotius' The Free Sea. And I'm feeling the weight of all this learning and my own excitement can't be forestalled any further. So on behalf of the University of Sydney, I give you the Lloyd C. Blankstein Professor of History at Harvard University, the Walter Chang Cabot Fellow at Harvard University, the Distinguished Lecturer for the Organisation of American Historians, all in the one person, David Armitage. Thank you, Glenda. That was such a generous introduction that I'm almost speechless. (laughs) Luckily, only almost speechless. You can always do my introductions. Thank you so much. For much of recorded history, the most frequent form of collective human conflict has been civil war. Even in the realm of current affairs and hot-off-the-press headlines, it continues to haunt humanity. In the past few months alone, Lebanon has narrowly avoided a recursion of its civil war. Kenya has been on the brink of civil war. Robert Mugabe has threatened a collapse into civil war if the claims of his opposition rivals are taken seriously. And the long overdue arrest, just the other day, of Radovan Karadzic is a reminder of the unfinished business from the Balkan civil wars. Few countries around the world have wholly escaped civil war, whether in the past or in the present. Australia is among the lucky few. Yet for all the prevalence, the prominence, and the pestilence of civil war, it still remains one of the least investigated species of recurrent human behavior. This may be because, as well as being among the most frequent, it is also among the most ferocious forms of conflict in recorded history. Consider briefly three major instances, Roman, British, and American. At the height of Rome's civil wars in the first century BCE, perhaps a quarter of all male citizens aged 17 to 46 were in arms. 1,700 years later, probably a greater proportion of England's population died during their civil wars of the 1640s than perished in the First World War. Two centuries later still, the military death toll in the U.S. Civil War was six times larger relative to size of population than the casualty rate in the Second World War. Slaughter on such a scale shattered communities, shaped nations, and scarred imaginations for centuries to come. 
nor has such carnage, of course, been confined to the distant past. In the first half of the 20th century alone, civil wars were pivotal events in the histories of China, Russia, Spain, Ireland, and Greece, at the most minimal count. And in the last 50 years, almost half the world's countries, especially its poorest, have suffered civil war. In 2006, the last year for which we have reliable figures, some 32 civil wars were in progress around the world. Their economic impact has been estimated at about uh, 120 US dollars, 120 billion US dollars per annum, or in fact more than what the developed world spends each year on aid to developing countries. Civil war remains a global scourge and ones that show, one that shows no signs of disappearing anytime soon. It is also now the defining form of human conflict. Since 2003 and George W. Bush's declaration that the U.S. mission in Iraq had been accomplished, there has been no major interstate war anywhere in the world. That was the last such conflict between, of course, the United States and Saddam Hussein's Republic of Iraq. All the remaining conflicts have been civil wars. Indeed, taking the focus a little bit further back, since 1989, 115 of the world's 122 wars have been international rather than international wars, though many of these internal conflicts have, of course, also drawn in outside powers, and that's one of the dangers of civil war, that they create regional disruption which draws in other powers as well. It seems then that for the foreseeable future, most, if not in fact all, militarized conflicts around the world will be civil wars. And that might even include the transnational terrorism of a group like Al-Qaeda, whose operations some commentators have begun calling phases in, in fact, a global civil war. And I'll return to that metaphor, as I think it is, uh, later in the lecture. As this latter example indeed suggests, the idea of civil war is both expansive and even now expanding under current international conditions. The term itself immediately raises questions, however, of definition. What makes a war civil? What could possibly be civil about a war when we usually take that adjective to qualify more benign forms of human activity? Civil society, civil disobedience, even perhaps civil servants. How far can we stretch the term civil war, civil, civil to describe war before losing all clarity and specificity to make it into a metaphor perhaps for all seasons and hence one without any clear meaning at all? And again, I will return to that at the end of this lecture. However, what I'd like to do in the bulk of my talk this evening is to trace the history of civil war from Rome, that is ancient Rome, to Iraq and even perhaps a little beyond. You'll be relieved to know it's not my intention to keep you here until at least next month with an encyclopedic narrative of every civil war for the last 2,000 years or so. Instead, I want to trace episodically but not comprehensively what I'd like to call a history in ideas of civil war. That is not just a history of the single idea of civil war, but a historical account of the way in which ideas of civil war, multiple ideas of civil war, have often been as conflictual as the dissensions they describe. That is, how competing ideas of civil war have led to often violent disagreement as well as conceptual confusion at moments of intense conflict. By tracing such a history in ideas, I can keep my subject within some bounds this evening, but I also hope to persuade you, at least by example, if not by explicit argument, that there is indeed a history in ideas and that there's a place for history here even, uh, perhaps especially here in Sydney's ideas. 
Describing civil war has always been much easier than defining it. For over two millennia, there's been almost as much conflict over the term civil war as there has been within civil wars themselves. Its application can depend upon whether you are a ruler or a rebel, the victor or the vanquished, an established government or an interested third party. Thucydides recognized 2,500 years ago that language is one of the first casualties of civil war. As his 17th century English translator, Thomas Hobbes, whom you probably know from other contexts, rendered Thucydides' words on this matter, the received value of names imposed for signification of things which changed to arbitrary under the conditions of civil war itself. So what to a ruler looks like a rebellion against their authority may be a civil war to the insurgents who aim to overturn that authority. And if the rebels succeed, one way to mark the triumph of their cause is to rebrand a civil war as a revolution, as I'll suggest briefly happened in the case of both the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The other powers of the earth looking on these civil conflicts may hedge their bets or decide that these wars are beyond their control because they're solely civil, that is, internal matters. The consequences of those decisions have, of course, been central to major conflicts across the centuries and around the world. Just to give a few examples, some of which I will fill in in a moment. Was the American Revolution a revolution only for Americans? Or was it, in fact, a civil war inside the British Empire in the 18th century? Was, indeed, the U.S. Civil War a war between equal opposing parties, as, of course, the Confederacy and its supporters thought, or instead a rebellion within the boundaries of a single sovereign state? Did calling the conflicts in Bosnia or Rwanda, for instance, civil wars, allow the rest of the world to wash their hands of responsibility for what took place behind closed sovereign borders? And does naming what is happening in Darfur, genocide rather than civil war, render a fundamentally political conflict instead intractably ethnic, and hence beyond hope of reasonable resolution? These choices of categories have indeed moral as well as political consequences. They can, in fact, be a matter of life and death for tens of thousands of people, and in fact, usually those least able to control how their own destinies are shaped. Now, nowhere has the struggle over the label civil war recently been more fraught or indeed more revealing than in the case of Iraq. In November 2006, American newspapers and networks like the Los Angeles Times and NBC began for the first time to describe the violence in Iraq as a civil war. Soon after, statesmen around the world also picked up the same idea. The Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan reluctantly admitted of Iraq, quotes, this is a civil war because I cannot make any other definition. Then UN Secretary General Kofi Annan was forced to agree. When we had strife in Lebanon, he said, and other places, we call that a civil war. This is much worse. Representatives of the Bush administration and other mostly right-wing military strategists and political pundits immediately denied that the turbulence in Iraq merited the name of civil war. Terrorism? Insurgency? A politico-military struggle for power? Perhaps. But a civil war? Certainly not. So what was at stake in applying or withholding the term civil war in relation to Iraq? Nothing less than the continuing presence of the U.S. and other coalition forces. If the violence amounted to a civil war, the argument seemed to run, it was a purely internal matter for Iraqis alone to sort out. Civil war, again the implication was, is chaotic, disorganized, and uniquely deadly. Above all, it's someone else's business. The message of the civil war mongers was therefore admit with defeat and withdraw, 
blood would have blood, the struggle would have to burn itself out. The arguments against using the term civil war for Iraq revealed what one leading analyst of contemporary civil war has called, quotes, the serious semantic confusion, even contestation it generates. The most rigorous opponents of the idea were two prominent British journalists, John Keegan and Bartle Bull. For any conflict to earn the designation civil war, they argued, the violence must be civil and it must be war. That is, according to their definitions, it had to be fought by organized bodies of combatants drawn from a single national population. Their method should be the use of force either to grasp or to retain overall political authority within their national territory. Using those stringent criteria, Keegan and Bull counted only five civil wars in modern history. The English Civil War of the mid-17th century, the American Civil War, the Russian Civil War, the Spanish Civil War, and the Lebanese Civil War of the 1970s and 80s. Because they argued the warring parties in Iraq were fragmented, partly made up of non-Iraqi insurgents, and fighting for ends more contradictory or simply opaque than seizing power, Iraq's troubles did not qualify as modernity's sixth civil war. A very different assessment of the situation in Iraq emerged in light of the conventional definition of civil war now used by political scientists. That stipulates that there must be, quotes, sustained military combat, primarily internal, resulting in at least 1,000 battlefield deaths per year, pitting central government forces against an insurgent force capable of inflicting upon the government forces at least 5% of the fatalities the insurgents sustain. I hope you've got that. It will be on the test at the end of the lecture. Taking these quite precise yardsticks in 2007, a U.S. Army sergeant who also happened to have a doctorate in political science and was serving in Baghdad calculated that Iraq had in fact suffered seven civil wars since 1945. His goal, in fact, was to debunk the definition and also to deny its applicability to the Iraq conflicts, conflict or conflicts, but he failed on both counts. The term civil war is, of course, still used in the debate on Iraq and now with little or no comment as it is also in relation to Afghanistan, of course, now as well. Moreover, the social scientific metric still stands and is still used by political scientists. Indeed, its criteria have produced a generally accepted global total of nearly 150 civil wars around the world between 1945 and 1999, of course, a number spectacularly different from the lone civil war in Lebanon that Keegan and Bull had counted in the same period, and even more spectacularly from their grand total of only five civil wars in 350 years of world history. Such dissenting definitions matter because the study of civil war has lately become academic business. Economists and political scientists have put major resources into examining the factors that cause civil war, what determines its intensity and duration, how civil wars end, and why they seem so often to recur. If, for example, aid agencies know what parts such factors as ethnic fragmentation, income inequality, the percentage of Muslims in the population, or even how mountainous a country's terrain is, play in determining the onset of civil war and its duration, then they can begin to shape their strategies for development more effectively. Likewise, if governments know how long such conflicts tend to last and what can help to bring them to an end, they can adjust their policies accordingly as well. But all such decisions depend on the quality and the precision of the data and also, crucially, of the definitions behind them. Competing conceptions of civil war can, as we've already seen, lead to spectacular disagreements, even over total numbers, such as those in the debate on Iraq. 
it may be time to step back from the fray a little and to ask just what work those conceptions of civil war have done in the past and what impact they are likely to have in the future. Here, I think, is where history, particularly where intellectual history or what I call history in ideas, can help us. Most social scientists study only those conflicts that have taken place since the Second World War. A few extend their horizons back with the help of a vast and extremely impressive database called the Correlates of War Project, which is based at the University of Michigan. However, even that huge compilation of data relating to conflict around the world extends back in time only to 1816. However, civil wars, so-called, have been with us since ancient Rome, if not before. And internal strife has been known for centuries before Romans gave it the name civil war or bellum civile. A longer perspective, history's perspective, I think is essential if we are to see just what has been at stake and indeed what is still at stake in calling a conflict a civil war. The most obvious way in which historians can contribute to ask is to ask what contemporaries themselves understood by the term civil war. The definitions produced by strategists and political scientists strive, of course, to be objective and transhistorical and transgeographical, especially when they incorporate such apparently neutral metrics as death rates expressed in round numbers and precise percentages. Again, historians would have to say that the definition of civil war has never been neutral in that way because it's always been contextual and indeed conflictual. And yet a further way is to see how the memory of civil war, past civil wars, shaped later conflicts. As we'll see, at least until the 19th century and the great historical watershed marked by the American Civil War, civil wars were generally understood as cumulative historical phenomena whose sequence gave shape, not at all a comforting shape, but a shape nonetheless, to the past and whose avoidance might be one of the achievements of the future. Civil war, I want to suggest, is first and foremost a category of experience. The participants know they're in the midst of a civil war long before the social scientists move in to measure battle casualties and run their regression analyses. Moreover, it's an experience refracted through history and through memory via the record of past civil wars in distant times and far-flung places and out of fears that civil war in one's own country might come again if one has had a civil war in the past, even the quite distant past. Victims of civil war have often experienced it through history and written accounts of it which become historical and then contribute to the fears and the anxieties uh, of others in later periods. And historical approach is therefore a very good, perhaps even the best way, to study the impact of civil war and its imagery over time. Wars over the meaning of civil war, as much as the meaning of war itself, are a prime subject, I believe, for such historical treatment. The history of civil war can, of course, as Glenda's already hinted, hardly be separated from the wider history of war. Yet when set in the history of warfare to core, civil war has always appeared both defining and anomalous. Defining, I think, because it's been such a persistent and characteristic form of organized violence for so long in human history. Yet anomalous because it challenges some of the most basic definitions of war itself. Take the most famous work of all on the subject of war, Clausewitz's classic On War of 1832. Like every other major modern theorist of warfare, Clausewitz nowhere mentions in his work civil war as a matter of strategy or policy or anything else. And such silence on the subject of civil war has persisted right up to the present and indeed at the highest levels of state policy. Just to give one key example, in February 2008, the U.S. Army issued the first revision since 9-11 of its operations manual. 
In its 180 tightly packed pages, there was one paragraph about civil war, which noted, not tremendously enlightening, that civil, civil wars often include major combat operations and can lead to massive casualties. That's as much wisdom as the U.S. Army has managed to gather on the subject. So long as wars between states are held to be the norm, wars within states will appear abnormal, even perhaps an abuse of the noble name of war itself. Yet civil war has been, in the words of the German poet Hans Magnus Enzensberger, not merely an old custom, but the primary form of all collective conflict. To understand its meaning will demand us going back now to Rome. For almost 2,000 years, civil war will be seen, at least in Europe and the neo-European world, through Rome-tinted spectacles. The Romans had a term for it. Bellum civile, civil war, was in fact one of three definitions of war bequeathed by Rome to its heirs in the Latin West and feared by their successors ever after. Civil war was both the most dreaded of all and the most frequently expected. It was a war between citizens, kives, from which we get civil, taking place within the community, the political community, the kivitas, the city itself, and in the Roman case, directed precisely at control of the Roman state. Now, I mentioned that there were three definitions, and I'll just give you the other two as well. Next on the scale of anticipated horror, according to the Romans, was what they called bellum servile, servile war, slave war, a slave uprising usually outside the bounds of Rome in places like Sicily, as in the uprising of Spartacus, for instance, and that idea of servile war would continue to haunt slave societies like the infant United States for centuries to come. And then finally, the third conception of Roman conception of war was what they called bellum sociale, a social war, a war fought between Romans and their allies, especially those members of the Roman Empire who felt they'd been accorded fewer rights than the full citizens who would be the competents in civil wars. Those wars fought between citizens, and that idea of a social war was sometimes used in relation to the American Revolution, for instance, as unequals within an empire. Yet the Roman legacy of civil war was not simply definitional, nor was it just legal, which is where these definitions take their greatest point. It was also importantly literary and historical and exercised an enduring grip upon the imagination of people around the world uh, for thousands of years afterwards. A sequence, in fact, of conflicts in Roman history had fallen under the name civil war. That sequence concluded with the victory of Julius Caesar in the most destructive struggle of all, the one that definitively marked the transition from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. Later, the oratory of Cicero, the poetry of Horace and Virgil, and above all, the epic poet Lucan's chilling work, The Civil War, De Bello Civile, left a canon of images that would inform later conceptions of civil war in the works of thinkers and writers as diverse as Machiavelli, Shakespeare, Marlowe, Hobbes, and Milton, among many others. Lucan, to just take this example, because it is a very influential example, began his poem on the Roman civil wars with a line that would echo down the centuries, beginning by talking about wars worse than civil, I sing. Worse than civil in this case, because he was describing the wars between Caesar and Pompey, who were cousins by marriage. So it was an intra-family dispute as well as an intra-Roman dispute. His vision of civil war um, offered a foresight of conflicts, later conflicts, that would ever after pit brother against brother, father against son, in the familial metaphors that civil war always seemed to attract in later, later uh, situations. 
also to expand the realm of the imaginative realm of the Roman civil wars most of Rome's greatest historians took its civil wars as their subject including Julius Caesar himself even before Caesar crossed the Rubicon in 49 BCE an act that we commemorate every time we talk about someone crossing the Rubicon as one of the great images from the Roman civil wars civil conflict had been frequently branded as unnatural or intestine, an appalling importation of violence and uncertainty within the pale of peace and civility supposedly represented by the Roman city itself. Rome's historians also established that civil wars, like sorrows, came not singly but in battalions. These Roman writers knew intuitively, long before political scientists could prove it statistically, that civil wars rarely, if ever, end cleanly, and are likely frequently and bloodily to recur. The European inheritors of Rome's traditions would see their own internal troubles as the culmination or the repetition of a cycle of similar wars that followed the pattern of the Roman civil wars, always plural civil wars, and that had played out across Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire. Again, we're moving very rapidly forward in time now to the early modern period. England alone had been through the Barons' Wars of the 13th century, the Wars of the Roses in the 15th century, and then the Civil Wars of the mid-17th century. Italy had had its Civil Wars in the 15th century, followed by the French Wars of Religion and the Dutch Revolt, a series of interlocking local conflicts in the late 16th century. This sequence of European Civil Wars was, of course, the incubator for some of the most creative political thought and literature in late medieval and early modern Europe, just to take a few brief examples. Machiavelli's discourses on Livy anatomized Rome's tumults in search of lessons for his own times in the early 16th century. Michel de Montaigne viewed the French civil wars from a defensive distance. As he put it, civil wars have this one thing worse than other wars to cause every one of us to make a watchtower of his own house. France's turmoils in the late 16th century also lent topical bite to Christopher Marlowe's massacre at Paris. Shakespeare indeed took... Civil war as the overarching theme of his histories, King John, the three parts of Henry VI and Richard II, for example, and of his Roman works, from the rape of Lucrece through Julius Caesar and on to Antony and Cleopatra. And, of course, the shadow of civil war fell most darkly across the work of Thomas Hobbes, whom I mentioned earlier, who wrote in his Leviathan, published in 1651 in the midst both of the English civil wars and also the French, Fronde, uh, their equivalent of the civil wars. He wrote then that, quotes, all civil government was ordained for avoiding civil war specifically. For him, indeed, as for a great many other political theorists, politics, that is, a means of managing conflict over basic drives and imperatives, was in fact a form of civil war by other means. One lesson early modern thinkers took from the history of these earlier civil wars was that not only were they recurrent, but they were also cumulative a sequence of successively defining dissensions across history. Again, moving rapidly forward in time to the late 18th century, Thomas Paine, writing in his Common Sense in 1776, wrote that, quotes, the whole history of England since the Norman Conquest of 1066 had been a record of almost constant turmoil in which he said, quotes, there have been, including the Glorious Revolution, no less than eight civil wars and 19 rebellions. The immediate purpose behind Paine's calculation in 1776 at the start of what would very soon be called the American Revolution was, of course, polemical. To persuade the American colonists to throw off the monarchy that had caused all those battles, not least by dissensions over succession to the throne, and he charged that monarchy, in fact, was a great force for instability and warfare, 
quotes, instead of making for peace, it makes against it and destroys the very foundation it seems to stand upon. Uh, Paine is one of the very first of what we might now call the democratic peace theorists, those who believe that republics or democracies do not go to war against each other, but he worked out that theory in the context of an attack on the British monarchy at that point. But by seeing civil war as a consequence of monarchy, peace as a consequence of republican government as he hoped the Americans would adopt it. His accounting was in many ways, though though polemical, it was otherwise quite conventional in taking civil wars as the pivotal events that had sequentially uh, shaped not just British history but also European history for the foreseeable, uh, for the rememberable past. Now defining history in that way as a series of civil wars might now seem quite alien to us but only because we tend to see the great sequence of political turning points in in world history as a sequence of revolutions, uh, which replaced civil wars as the scarlet thread in a narrative of emerging modernity. Those major social and political upheavals, think of the American and French revolutions, the Chinese and the Russian, the Cuban and the Iranian, among others, formed our world, we tend to imagine, because they were all international as much as national events. They extended or assaulted the international system and shook the world like no other political tremors. And indeed, part of these revolutions' success lay precisely in marking themselves as decisive breaks with the past, a year zero or the opening of a new order of the ages. In light of such revolutionary hopes and aspirations, civil war could only seem to be retrograde, pointless and sterile by comparison, with no promise of liberation and the prospect only of destruction. The invidious contrast built up, therefore, between revolution and civil war successfully obscured the fact that most, if not all, of the major modern revolutions were, at their heart and for much of their course, civil wars. Some years before anyone called the transatlantic conflict of the late 18th century the American Revolution, inhabitants of Britain and its American colonies were terming it the American Civil War. The name came mostly from opponents of the American cause in Britain or from loyalists, for instance, for whom the term civil war, again thinking historically and recurrently, evoked images of mid-17th century Puritan fanaticism. But it did also capture two salient historical features of the American Revolution, that it was fought mostly between citizens of a single community, the British Atlantic Empire, and that it also encompassed a string of bitterly divided local conflicts in colonies such as New York and South Carolina. Likewise, the French Revolution appeared to conservative observers like Edmund Burke as indeed also a civil war, pitting two starkly opposed French nations against each other after 1789. Burke also used the description of the French Revolution as a civil war, an ongoing civil war, into the 1790s, as a justification for what we might now call humanitarian intervention or even regime change. As he argued that in such a case of internal division, when a country like France had turned into two nations, it was quite legitimate for outside powers to decide which horse to back, as it were, to intervene uh, and to join in uh, a war against hostile forces. This we might see as an early extreme example as the way the choice of the term civil war could have significant political and indeed geopolitical consequences uh, for the internationalization of civil conflict. Writing in 1916, Lenin noted that, quotes, civil wars in every class society are the natural and under certain conditions inevitable continuation, development, and intensification of the class struggle. All the great revolutions prove this. The Chinese and Russian revolutions, each of which spawned its own civil war, certainly proved it. 
Revolution and civil war both, we might say, represent the breakdown of the regular processes of politics. But they're much harder to disentangle from each other than most great ideologists of of revolution, from Jefferson and Robespierre to Trotsky and Mao, might have us believe. A major case in point is the American Civil War. Leading figures on both sides of the sectional divide called the American Civil War a second American Revolution, just as we've seen we might call the American Revolution the first American Civil War further blurring the boundary between revolution and civil war, but also placing their struggles in historical perspective. For Abraham Lincoln, speaking most famously in the Gettysburg Address, that conflict was, quote, a great civil war, testing whether a nation, as he put it, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal can long endure. On the other side of the divide, to southern secessionists, the American Civil War was in fact a repetition of 1776, in which their communities were resuming, in the language of the American Declaration of 1776, a position among the nations of the world as separate and independent states, on the same grounds that the colonies had used to declare their independence of the British Empire nearly a century earlier. That collision of perspectives about the meaning and the boundaries of the the conflict uh, in the 1860s was a problem not only for politicians, but even more acutely on the ground for military commanders, especially as it turned out on the Union side. Under what rules of engagement would the Union Army treat the rebels? Did the laws of war apply? And would bringing them to bear imply that the conflict was indeed, as the Confederacy argued, not an internal rebellion, but in fact a war between separate states, which should be recognized internationally as separate states? Could such an irregular form of con- combat, in fact, be restrained by any rules of com- rule, uh, Such an irregular form of conflict be constrained by any rules of combat? And if one side saw the other as rebels or insurgents, could there be any limits on their behavior towards such literal outlaws? The urgency of these questions in the context of the American Civil War led to the first formal legal definition of civil war, drafted and promulgated at the height of the conflict in North America. This appeared in the famous General Orders No. 100, perhaps better known as the Lieber Code after its main author, the Columbia University law and political science professor, Francis Lieber. Lieber had been commissioned by General Henry Halleck, the, the chief of the, war, the Union War Office, to produce the first code of the laws of war for the use of the Union Army. The first draft of these laws that Lieber sent to Halleck in February 1863 lacked one crucial component, a definition of civil war the very kind of conflict in which the Union Army had, of course, been engaged for more than a year at that point. As Halleck wrote to Lieber, quotes, to be more useful at the present time, your code should embrace civil war as well as war between states or distinct sovereignties. Lieber, it turned out, had no legal precedent to hand to provide a definition for civil war and soon discovered the semantic confusion surrounding the term of which others had complained. As he wrote to Halleck in the midst of his head-scratching about the definition in March 1863, I am writing my four sections on civil war. Ticklish work, that. What then was Lieber's final definition, and how did it relate to the conflict from which it arose? It distinguished civil war from rebellion in ways that were clearly inflected by the context of the American Civil War. And I'll just quote briefly the two paragraphs in which he defines it in the code. Paragraph 150. Civil war is war between two or more portions of a country or state, each contending for the mastery of the whole and each claiming to be the legitimate government. 
The term is also sometimes applied to war of rebellion, when the rebellious provinces or portions of the state are contiguous to those containing the seat of government. Paragraph 151. The term rebellion is applied to an insurrection of large extent and is usually at war between the legitimate government of a country and portions or provinces of the same who seek to throw off their allegiance to it and to set up a government of their own. Three things I think are worth noting briefly about that definition. The first is that Liber's first definition of civil war corresponded closely to the Roman meaning of the, war, uh, of the term as a war taking place within a single political community for control of the state itself. Second, that Lieber's other definition of civil war, just to remind you, sometimes applied to a war of rebellion, where the rebellious provinces or portions of the state are contiguous to those containing the seat of government, was made up of whole cloth. Such a definition had no precedent for it and was clearly and specifically tailored to the peculiar circumstances of the American Civil War, in which the rebellious provinces of the South were indeed contiguous to those of the North. Third, and most uh, damagingly for his attempt to provide a clear legal definition, was the fact that by his definition, the U.S. Civil War was not a civil war at all, but in fact, a rebellion. The South was not contending for mastery of the whole. They weren't trying to take over the whole of the United States. They were attempting, of course, to uh, gain or, as they thought, retain their independence. Uh, and what uh, his definition uh, implied from the second paragraph I quoted to you was that the conflict was, in fact, a rebellion, not a civil war, hence presumably the official Union designation at the time and subsequently of it as a war of the rebellion. Indeed, the fact that both Lieber uh, and uh, Francis Lieber and Abraham Lincoln generally referred to the conflict as a civil war, great or otherwise, made something of a mockery of Lieber's attempt at definitional precision. However, versions of Lieber's tortured definition of civil war, created again specifically for the, uh, the circumstances, albeit inappropriately, I think, for the circumstances of the American Civil War, would in fact find their way into subsequent iterations, not only of the U.S. Army's field manuals in the 19th century and beyond, but his broader codification of the laws of war would in turn become the foundation for both the Hague and the Geneva Conventions, which governed armed conflict throughout the 20th century. One of that brutal era's harshest legacies has been the gradual abandonment by warring parties of the laws of war in the case of civil conflicts. And this has increased the savagery of civil war in the last few decades, just as it's dissolved the crucial distinction between civilians and military personnel so laboriously built up by Lieber and other lawyers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries who tried to codify the laws of war and centrally as part of that to define the arena within which civilians could be protected from war itself. Again, a crucial matter in relation to civil war, a war that attacks civilians, that does not recognize uh, a particular status for military personnel but overflows all of the carefully constructed legal and other boundaries. The legacy of the American Civil War, I want to suggest very briefly, for future conflicts was thus an ambivalent one. Indeed, the promise of ameliorating its horror by bringing it to in the, within the pale of formal and legalized warfare, but also it transmitted a somewhat misleading conception of civil war as fought primarily by regular armies for relatively short periods of time and whose operations could be terminated cleanly by surrender or negotiation the process of the American Civil War, its course, and also its conclusion is anomalous in the history of civil wars. The rest of humanity's bloodiest century, the 20th century, would show just how inappropriate that model would be for the conflicts to come. The American Civil War would be a poor predictor of the shape of later civil wars because it involved no outside intervention and barely spilled outside of the frontiers of the United States, at least in its military effects. 
the civil wars of the 20th century would more often be internal wars with international dimensions. Conversely, the century's great international wars would increasingly be seen as civil wars, but now thrown onto broad continental and even global scales. The revolutionary universalisms of the late 18th and 19th centuries, those great bequests of American ideas of universal freedom, French revolutionary declarations of the rights of man, or Marx's vision of history as a universal class struggle, for example, radically shifted the conceivable communities within which civil wars might now be held to take place. That is not solely national communities, but communities that encompass continents or indeed the whole of humanity. Europe, Asia, even the whole world could now be the kibitas, the political community, whose citizens fell into contestation with one another. In this mode, just to take one or two examples of of, of this from the the later 20th century, in the 1980s, the right-wing revisionist German historian Ernst Nolte described the entire period between 1917 and 1945 as, quote, a European civil war. That is a struggle within a single community, a single civilizational community between Bolshevism and fascism. Such a vision was, not, of course, not intended to be a positive one and had its roots in particularist critiques of French revolutionary universalism's allegedly destructive consequences, as well as in the thought of the greatest German anti-liberal thinker, Karl Schmitt, and of his followers. However, the characterization of the entire span of the world wars later as a single European civil war also found purchase in some rather unexpected places, as, for example, when former U.S. Secretary of State Dean Acheson wrote in a similar way of 1914 to 1945 as, quote, a European civil war, in effect a civilizational war, that had later intersected with an Asian civil war in the East. Such an expansion of the boundaries of the idea of civil war was, of course, a product of the Cold War itself, a conflict which would in turn be called a global civil war. This idea of global civil war has in the past 40 years referred to many things, but I'll just pick out three for the moment, three successively threatening series of events. First, as I've just hinted, it became for a time a fashionable shorthand for the Cold War itself, that basic clash of ideas and wills uh, within the world community that led John F. Kennedy in his second State of the Union address to call the Cold War a global civil war that has divided and tormented mankind. Secondly, It's been more recently been used to denote the struggle between transnational terrorists like the partisans of al-Qaeda against established state actors like the United States and Great Britain. In this sense, global civil war implies little more than an unbridled struggle between opposed parties without any of the constraints placed upon conventional forms of warfare, a return to a state of nature in which there are no rules for a war of all against all. And thirdly, A global conception of civil war might refer more plausibly to the observable fact that intrastate war has replaced interstate war as the world's most characteristic form of conflict for the current generation and possibly well beyond. The decades since 1945 may go down in history as the world's great age of civil war, while the global north those of us lucky enough to be in the United States, Britain, Australia, and such like countries, has been congratulating itself on securing a long peace around the world. The global south, the poorest parts of the world, have been enduring a long agony of civil war. Nearly three-quarters of the people in the world's 50 poorest countries, those the development economist Paul Collier has called the bottom billion, have suffered civil war in the past 50 years. The causes of those civil wars are varied and complex. 
But poverty correlates closely with the incidence of civil strife, more closely than almost any other factor. Like the poor, it seems civil war will always be with us. And so long as the poor remain, they will disproportionately bear the brunt of civil war. And that impact is usually harsher than that of what we still think of as conventional warfare. Even as conventional warfare, uh, what military strategists call industrial warfare, large armies pitted against each other uh, on, uh, on the field, for instance, has become more and more unusual. In international conflicts, of course, all the provisions of the Geneva Convention can be held to apply to the combatants. In civil wars, however, such restraints become more flexible. Just to take one example, Common Article 3 of the Geneva Convention applies specifically to what it calls cases of armed conflict, not of an international character. But that slippery negative definition has opened many loopholes. For example, in 1996, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia ruled that the Bosnian War had mutated from an international war to a civil war at the point in 1992 when the former Federal Republic of Yugoslavia had withdrawn its support from the ethnic Serbs. The ruling in, the, in that particular case where uh, this, this judgment was made was later reversed on appeal. But the discussions in the case revealed how much can hang on the definition of a war as a civil war. In this case, whether a defendant could be held liable for breaches of the Geneva Convention in the course of the conflict, and also how flexible the boundaries of humanitarian law can be. As the Tribunal for Yugoslavia asked in, in, in 1996, quotes, why protect civilians from belligerent violence or ban rape? torture, or the wanton destruction of hospitals, churches, museums, or private property, as well as prescribe weapons causing unnecessary suffering when two sovereign states are engaged in war, and yet refrain from enacting the same bans or providing the same protection when armed violence erupted only within the territory of a sovereign state. The international institutions created in the last decade or so, not least in the wake of the, uh, 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 the wars in the Balkans, uh, including, of course, the institution before which uh, uh, Radovan Karadzic will soon be tried, have, of course, endeavored to provide answers to such urgent questions uh, about bringing the laws of war and criminal prosecution within the pale of civil wars and not allowing that to be any kind of let out for uh, the greatest atrocities which have been committed in Europe, at least, since the Second World War. Now that there are no formal interstate wars in progress, but only civil wars, the world clearly needs uh, more precise guidance on how such conflicts can be regulated and how their deadly impact can be blunted. To paraphrase the Roman poet Lucan, whom I quoted earlier, there are no forms of war worse than civil wars, because these are, but these are also the wars humanity is most likely to be facing for the foreseeable future. The great interstate wars of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries laid the foundations for the modern laws of war, which then found their first full expression in the Lieber Code during the U.S. Civil War. We can only hope that civil war might once again create uh, and generate new protocols for such conflicts, as well as strategies to alleviate the developing world's long agony. In short, what we need pressingly are more ideas about civil war, about its deep past, its turbulent present, and what we m might trust will be its very short future. On that hope may yet depend the welfare and the lives of millions, as well as the very future of war and the prospects for peace around the world. Thank you.
Um, thank you very much, David, for that wonderful lecture. And we're now going to open the floor for some questions. If you do have a question, uh, it's probably preferable if you use the microphone that's just at the front there. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier about um, how language is one of the first casualties of war, civil war, conflict. Um, I'm wondering on your comments towards um, the reportage of the Iraq war in the American media and also how the two major parties have used different terms like insurgency and the surge and all those terms, um, especially given that it's an election year. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's notable that um, public discussion of the relevance or applicability of the term of civil war has declined in the, uh, since the surge, in fact. Um, this is, maybe we may say, one of the hopeful aspects, at least temporarily, of the Iraq conflict, that incidences of violence have gone down. I think the... The less mainstream media which are reporting on this is saying there are very clear reasons for that, uh, uh, that uh, if troops are withdrawn, there will be resurgences of violence in, in various communities, and we may be seeing more discussion of the term civil war. But I think the particular political debate about the applicability of civil war was, in fact, an artifact of the period about 18 months ago or so. Um, it was very controversial at that point because it was enmeshed in the discussions prior to the surge, and in particular, the highly politicized partisan discussions about withdrawal or not at that point um, as the surge went ahead implacably um, as it seems to have had some positive results. Uh, the discussion of the term civil war has in fact gone on to the back burner as it were. Though it's interesting that even as that's been happening in relation to the particular political debate about the use of the term in Iraq, it's become um, 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 an uncontentious description of both the violence in Iraq and also in Afghanistan as well now and often in terms as I, as I think I uh, mentioned in, in, in the lecture as well, uh, to think of it not as one single civil war, but as multiple civil wars as well, uh, which don't necessarily fit some of the conventional political definitions of civil war. It's not clear, for example, that uh, various bodies of insurgents in Iraq are trying to gain control of the Iraqi state. They have other more opaque, uh, indefinable aims, so it may not fit the political definition of civil war in that way. But in terms of internal conflict, um, I think there's hardly anybody who would disagree that civil war or multiple civil, multiple and intersecting civil wars have been going on there, as also in Afghanistan. And again, uh, the dropping out of the term from debate has in some ways slowed down the attempt to think about, well, what are the implications of keeping very large numbers of troops in both of those um, arenas? Of course, Australia now, uh, with the change of government, is pulling out, not least to reassign its troops to other places where uh, there's more possibility both of doing good and also of avoiding the quagmires that civil wars immediately lead to. So although the debate isn't quite so explicit, I think uh, the, 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 the definitions might still be relevant there. But thank you for the question. Hello. Just when you started your lecture, you talked. You mentioned briefly the situation in Darfur, mm. and you talked about how defining that or labelling that as genocide somehow removes it from being called a civil war because it takes on an ethnic dimension. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Mm. Yes, I'm thinking here of some um, recent writings by the commentator Mahmoud Mandani, who has pointed out that to call a conflict like Darfur genocide is in the case, particularly when applied to Africa, to imply that this is a tribal conflict, an ethnic conflict, a timeless conflict, an irrational conflict, that um, therefore it takes it out of the realm of politics. It doesn't understand it as uh, a rational conflict which may be being fought, bloodily indeed, uh, by opposed groups for political reasons and hence effectively makes it unresolvable. If you assume that it comes from timeless and irrational 
ethnic hatreds and divisions. That's effectively to say we th- the rest of the world, the, the, the developed world in particular, throws up its hands, assumes that the conflict is going to be perpetually intractable as well as almost too horrific to contemplate, and there is no point even thinking about intervening. So it can be taken to be an excuse for um, not even starting a, a discussion about the possibility of, say, humanitarian intervention in, in such a conflict. It was just a way of pointing that conversely not calling a conflict a civil war, but calling it by another very charged name with many different meanings and arguments behind it, which other scholars, not least here uh, at the University of Sydney, have dealt with, um, can be a way of um, avoiding um, any engagement, particularly with the political uh, content of, of conflict in, in that way. Um, so genocide and civil war uh, are, are both highly conflictual terms, but they can have uh, similar implications in terms of the rest of the world staying out of conflicts because they think them either to be ethnically intractable in the case of genocide or to be somebody else's business in the case of civil war. And that does have policy implications, just simply the very terms, because they're so emotive, they raise so many images um, behind them that it's difficult to get back behind such terms to to think rationally and in policy terms about uh, what might be the best moves for the people within a particular country who might be suffering such things. So labels really do matter in, in these cases, and genocide just as much as civil war. Indeed. Absolutely, yes. Yes. Yes, there is that precise legal definition as well. I mean, I'm not by any means saying that that's unimportant. That's extraordinarily important in the case of genocide. But uh, in, the, in the case of using the term genocide, it can operate in this way to say, nothing to do with us. Let's, let's, let's stay out of it. But the more precise definitions are, um, are um, have much more precise implications. That, that's right. And political implications as well. Yeah. David, can I ask you a conceptual question? Yeah. So... Uh, if most, uh, you know, one of the really crucial distinctions is between civil and international mm. in political thought. And if most wars are now civil, then, you know, as an historian, as a prophet facing backwards, um, what, what does this tell us then about the future of international law? What becomes international and what becomes civil mm. in an era when all wars are civil and international law is meant to govern interstate Mm-hmm. activity. So mm-hmm. what's, I mean, project forward, what's the, mm. what's the, what's the consequence for our conception of international mm. law? Well, of course, the danger of walking backwards with historical hindsight is you tend to bump into things and fall over, which I think is probably what I would do if I followed the implications of that question too far. I mean, as, as you know, ex- better than I do, um, international law has widely expanded its ambit over the course of the 20th century to go beyond simply interstate relations in that way. If we talk about the laws of war in particular, which is the example I wanted to touch on here, uh, I think the, that there is already uh, discussion, uh, but it's not necessarily discussion that's reached the highest levels of uh, military colleges, for instance, about how the laws of war as a subset of international law could be applied within civil conflicts. Usually not, of course, within uh, the course of those conflicts, which tend to be hard to penetrate legally in that way, uh, but how can we retrospectively use the laws of war as uh, the criteria for judgment on war criminals like Karadzic, for instance. I think that's an, uh, it's, uh, it's a very a key example, which, of course, is right, right in the headlines now, is how, uh, uh, how that will be enforced, what criteria, which laws will be enforced, what, what, uh, uh, what, what uh, uh, laws he will be held to have um, uh, offended against there. And that, that will, I think, cumulatively expand in terms of case law and precedent, the boundaries of an international law for uh, criminal 
tribunals in, in particular, which uh, will create a body of law in relation to civil wars, which uh, one might hope at least might ameliorate um, some of the atrocities that take place during civil conflict as it becomes increasingly clear that it's harder and harder to escape international justice uh, for the atrocities that are committed behind the boundaries of sovereignty within the, the pale of the state itself as protected by sovereign boundaries from external intervention. So um, I'm not going to predict how things are going to go, but one might have a hope that this will build up to, again, expand the boundaries of international law in such a way that civil war can become ameliorated as over the course of at least the early modern period, interstate war at least formally was uh, ameliorated by the laws of war and the conventions that built up through that. Would you like to comment on the aftermath of civil war, how it affects communities, how it affects families? Historically, I tried to suggest this with very broad brushstrokes, that civil war tends to to linger in the memory, not just of individuals, but also of families, as you say, and then also of nations much longer than other forms of war, uh, because it leaves physical scars on the landscape. The, one of the horrors of civil wars is fought within the arena that you think of as uh, the pale of civility, the pale of peace and security itself. Think of Hobbes's images of creating a commonwealth within which war is bracketed out. It's something that's outside. It doesn't come within. And the great horror of civil war is that it comes within. Um, it scars landscapes and psyches, and then it's remembered ever after. And so um, a part of the larger project from which, which this comes will be tracing the memory of civil war, not just of the civil wars that are fought on your own soil, but of other people's civil wars as well, the fear that it will happen to you, that those uh, terrible atrocities will happen to you as well. And certainly there are um, um, political scientists and others who have done um, extraordinarily detailed Uh, studies, for instance, of the aftermath of, say, the Greek Civil War to look at how specific communities both um, negotiated civil war while it was going on, how conflict erupted locally within particular communities, but also what the long-term consequences for that were. That's that's not the kind of research that I do necessarily. I'm still interested largely in the history of ideas, but uh, uh, that is a very interesting um, arena of research now, is to think about precisely those implications for communities as a whole, but also for villages and families as well. It is very scarring. Again, uh, most of us are very lucky, um, especially Australia is very lucky, never to have suffered a civil war in the sense that it's afflicted many other major uh, countries around the world. Um, It's it's hard for us, to, many of us at least, to project uh, what that must be like, except through often literary accounts, uh, for instance, is one reason I want to bring literature into my account of civil war, not just politics or economics, for instance, that we need to know how people experienced it and how they remembered it and what their memory of civil war did to their fears for the future um, as well as their hopes to avoid um, falling back into such conflicts. Since, as I mentioned, since Rome, people who have studied or written about civil war close up and at long distance know that one thing that distinguishes civil wars from interstate wars or at least it's more characteristic of civil wars is the fact they recur, they do come back. Um, and that's something, again, political scientists who've examined in detail civil wars in the 20th century and also the 19th century have shown very, very clearly. Uh, civil wars uh, last longer on average. The average length of a civil war is about 10 years. Um, and they tend to recur more frequently, uh, even if they go into remission. So two years after a civil war, um, at least in the post 1945 period, there's, a, I think, a 50% chance, something like that, of civil war recurring, and that fear is always going to eat away at people, obviously. Yeah. 
Hi, David. As a student of international studies and mm. uh, and Sri Lankan, mm. I would like to mm. find out from you what is the exact situation as to Sri Lanka. Mm. Would you categorize this as a bellum civile mm. or whether you would call it a liberation mm. struggle? Mm. And mm. in fact, it has been going on for the last 25 years, mm. Mm. and it is very unfortunate that the international community. Mm is not taking much interest mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. nearly 200,000 people have died in the struggle. Mm -hmm. So what is the exact uh, role the international community mm -hmm. should play? And I would like to find out from a mm -hmm. great academic like you. Thank you. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, I would not presume to comment on that to someone who would obviously know a great deal more about the Sri Lankan uh, situation uh, than I would. I, I, uh, it's, it's one among many that, I, that I've read about in the newspapers but not concentrated on, but I think that uh, my own attitude may be symptomatic of exactly what you're referring to, that the conflict has gone on for so long that hasn't yet drawn in the intervention of major powers from the outside is one that the world has put to one side of its consciousness, but you're absolutely right about the death toll, the intractability uh, of that conflict, but um, I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just a humble historian. Um, I wouldn't presume to comment specifically on, on that, but I'd love to talk to you afterwards about um, your sense of what's going on there from what you've been following, and maybe you have family, for instance, who are there can, who can give testimony to that. But I'm, I'm grateful for you bringing that into the conversation. Thank you. Professor, if I understood you correctly, yeah. you, you said that poverty had the highest correlation yeah. as a cause for the, for the civil wars. Um, what are people saying now about the, you know, the, the possibility of food shortages around the world and what the likelihood is for, you know, an increase mm -hmm. generally in civil war mm -hmm. um, everywhere. Absolutely. No, I, um, I, I rely on the research of others for this. The really most exciting area of research on civil war has been by development economists who, I, as I mentioned, are looking for precisely what factors correlate with the, um, the, the, the beginning of civil war, the length of civil war, how civil wars end, um, just drawing from their research, especially from people like Paul Collier and World Bank economists. Um, the clearest correlation, as I mentioned, does seem to be poverty, but the, the predictions are exactly, as you say, that conflicts over resources um, now correlate pretty closely as well. So having gold or diamonds or uranium in a poor country, which also happens to be near the coast, there's quite a close correlation between being on a coast partly for uh, reasons of trade, but also competition for commerce, and for, for instance. That's a really bad recipe for potential disaster. Um, and without being a, a real prophet of doom, I mean, any country which has um, foreseeable disputes over major and fundamental resources like, I'm afraid to say in Australia, water, um, could be in problems. Maybe not civil war in the case of a well-established um, society like Australia, but yeah, uh, those, those disputes over... Uh, resources are likely to get much more acute. Um, and again, correlate that with poverty and then some of the other incidences. It's not a hopeful picture for the declining incidence of civil war. And I, I think I, I skated over this very briefly, but there was a spike in civil wars, roughly 1945 to 89. Then there's a tailing off a bit. We're now at something of a plateau, roughly 30 civil wars going on at any particular moment around the world. Uh, but I think some of the development economists who are trying to think just a little bit beyond the horizon are saying that the plateau we've reached 
is not necessarily likely to go down. It's quite likely to now go up precisely because of these foreseeable long-term long um, disputes over resources. Again, Africa is likely to be the, the main um, cockpit for, uh, continue to be the main cockpit for, for such disputes, but uh, there will be disputes over other uh, similar resources around the world as well, as we know from droughts in Australia, California. Um, this, this is going to create acute problems in the longer term. Uh, one of the parts of your definition of civil war yeah. was that uh, it's most well, it's it's a struggle for political supremacy um, yeah. intranationally. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just thinking about the number of conflicts which also um, have had sort of other particular factors which have been quite yeah. prominent. So yeah. uh, I'm thinking particularly of the English civil wars uh, and the um, impact of religion on them, yeah. as well as sort of global civil war mm. and al-Qaeda and mm -hmm. the way that religion plays a role in that. I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could just comment on, on that a bit. Mm. Yeah, that, that, can, that can be another, um, um, as it were, accelerant to the fire uh, of civil war to have fundamental dispute about religion. In, in the case of the English civil wars, which, uh, which I, I know rather better than the, the uh, uh, details of the, the religious dimension to uh, the global civil war at the moment, um, it's certainly the case when you have... Um, a connection between church and state in such a way that control of the one is effectively control of the other, um, that that will create even deeper divisions as well that uh, we might even um, say in a kind of Marxist vein that religion becomes an ideological force in, in, in such conflicts as well. Um, and uh, as you probably know very well, there have been historians in recent years or more in the 70s and the 80s who talked of the, the English Civil Wars as the last wars of religion and even then who pushed that idea further and talked about the American Revolution as a war of religion between different particular Protestant denominations, but especially fearing uh, Catholicism as well. And certainly in the early modern period, there's a, uh, uh, in the fears of those who are writing about civil war, uh, there's a close correlation between uh, fear about religious division and fear about political division. Again, just to come back to Thomas Hobbes, think of uh, the Leviathan, which he, uh, uh, on the title pages, uh, on, on both the pictorial title page and then the, the, the main title page. Um, it's, it's about creating a commonwealth, both ecclesiastical and civil. Um, the, the Leviathan, the great uh, uh, artificial man, holds in each hand a sword and the bishop's crozier. And keeping control over religion is to keep control over the civil state as well. Crucial uh, for Hobbes, even though most people don't read the last two books of Hobbes about the Christian commonwealth. For him, at least, the classic example of how politics is the solution to civil war, um, cauterizing the, uh, the dangers of religious division is as important, if not more important, than uh, creating the conditions under which civil dissension will not emerge as well. So absolutely, it can be an accelerant, and there are many other examples of that. So thank you for bringing that into. Yeah. Um, just the United Nations role, I guess under the definition that you were, um, or several definitions of civil war, do they have a, or do they have a more major role to play, mm. such as Zimbabwe and Sri Lanka, etc., mm. and what qualifies before they will intervene? Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite, quite catch the very end of that. <clears throat> what would qualify as a civil war before they intervene? 
Uh, well, that, that would be for the international community to determine. That's what I was trying to, uh, to get at is the very debates about whether something is a civil war can, in most circumstances, provide a block to any intervention. Redefining something, um, I mean, it can be the case that redefining something as a genocide, of course, sets up uh, the conditions under which international intervention will become um, um, imperative. Um, defining something as a civil war uh, tends to assume that it puts up boundaries around a conflict that is somewhere into which intervention should not uh, take place. So uh, again, I'm not familiar enough with the debates over the last quarter century, for instance, about Sri Lanka to know how far that has been publicly debated, for instance, within the United Nations or other international arenas. Uh, and the obvious implication in the end, as uh, the earlier questioner pointed out, is that the international community has basically turned a blind eye to, to that particular conflict and has allowed it itself to continue not yet to burn out. Uh, under its own conditions. But uh, what I was trying to point to is that the definitions do matter, not just in terms of the pure words themselves, but because they, they have many implications. Um, they can trigger different reactions. Uh, they do raise very different uh, conceptions of humanitarian, moral, or political responsibility uh, by others outside that particular community. Um, and hence, a lot can hang on uh, whether or not we use that language in, in particular disputes. Uh, those specific examples, I don't know the literature on them as, as well as I do in some of the examples I gave here, but I'd be very interested to know if others have looked at those to see whether there were debates about the terminology and the, uh, the implications that uh, flowed from that in, in those particular cases. Yeah, um, David, I thought that you've given a really, um, you know, perceptive analysis of the kind of work uh, that calling a conflict a civil conflict does and, uh, you know, why it is that uh, people will try to use, you know, that term instead of others and how a civil conflict can be called a revolution and vice versa. But um, in terms of actually understanding, you know, the nature of the beast uh, and also knowing, you know, what to do about it, um, I wonder whether there's a problem in, you know, treating this as a, a matter of either or, yeah, either it's a civil yeah, conflict or right. it's something else. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, the, the data set, the, the correlates of war project that you work on, I think one of the reasons why a lot of military historians and diplomatic historians hesitate to use it yeah. is because, like a lot of, you know, quantitative analysis, um, you know, it, it tends to, to deal in binaries, mm -hmm, you know, and, mm -hmm. and coding, you mm -hmm. know, and so you know, a conflict where there are more people killed gets a five instead of a three, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and if there are casualty estimates that differ by orders of magnitude, right. they just split the difference, you know, mm -hmm. and so, mm -hmm. so when they code conflicts as either civil conflict, you know, or international mm -hmm. conflict, a lot of the, the nuance, you know, that, that historians, mm -hmm. you know, um, um, value can be lost. And so, you know, just to finish up and, and pose the question, mm -hmm. um, you know, with the Iraq conflict, uh, the best analysis that I've ever heard was by a, an Australian anthropologist, mm. David Kilcullen, mm. um, mm. who was actually hired by the mm -hmm. State Department mm -hmm. to help us figure out what was going on. And the point he made, it's very simple but, but penetrating, is that it's not as if there's um, a civil war in Iraq or not. It's that there are multiple right. conflicts. Um, there's a revolution, yes, mm -hmm. it's an international mm -hmm. conflict, mm -hmm. there's an insurgency, there's a terrorist campaign. And dealing with each of these dimensions makes dealing with the others more complicated and more difficult. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there have been many conflicts like that, like mm -hmm. the Algerian War, you know, and others as well. So as historians, um, as much as we can learn from what, you know, uh, 
what, how we call conflict civil or not and the kind of political work that does, if we're actually to have actionable intelligence, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. what do we do about civil conflict and its many dimensions, you know, aren't we better off mm. recognizing that most compl complicated conflicts actually have many different dimensions? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't have put that better myself, and indeed I didn't. Uh, I'm ab 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 absolutely not here to defend the Correlates of War project, and there was, a, there was a much more blistering couple of paragraphs, which would be interest probably to you and to me and to nobody else in this room, uh, about uh, that particular project. And what I, what, one of the things I'm interested in in the project is how the hegemony of something like the Correlates of War project came to be so dominant in the social sciences, and what the consequences of that are, precisely because, as you say, uh, the coding, the definitions are uh, speciously exact uh, and precisely the kinds of splitting the differences and so on make a mockery of the precision of the whole project. Uh, but it has become this, this enormous machine now, a uh, sausage machine for political scientists and other um, um, social scientists. Uh, and partly what I'm interested in, not least by taking this 2,000-year perspective, is by saying very roughly, let's say, uh, for much of the 2,000-year period up to uh, the late 20th century, it tended to be um, historians and um, literary writers and orators who framed the image of civil war. But in the post-Second -world, post World War period, it became political scientists. I know this is something you're very interested in as well, as the way in which the social sciences have an impact, not least on international affairs and, and, and thinking about them as well. And so, again, the larger project is going to be asking how did that come to be the case, what are the consequences of it, and uh, really what are the limitations? Again, that's why I was pressing so hard on the variety of definitions just of civil war itself without even getting into precisely those larger questions of how civil war, revolution, um, other kinds of insurgency, terrorism, rebellion uh, are always present. And again, I, I, I think uh, that's, that's what I was trying to hint at, for instance, in relation to the American Revolution and the, the French Revolution. Uh, they're called revolutions retrospectively by the winners. Uh, but we need to say that they indeed were revolutions by some uh, various definitions of that, but they were also civil wars, and they involved insurgencies, and they involved perhaps even genocides in places like the Vendée in the case of the French Revolution. These are immensely complex. So no, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more uh, with, with that critique, and uh, certainly I'm not being sponsored by uh, the, uh, uh, the University of Michigan project, uh, um, happily um, named Cow, uh, uh, to, uh, to do this, but I'm just amazed at uh, not least the number of historians historians who rely on that extremely imprecise um, and highly contestable um, set of data. Um, and I, I, I find more useful, for instance, the, um, uh, uh, the Uppsala project uh, on, on conflict, which tends to be a bit more subtle in trying to gather detailed information about particularly um, internationalized in, intrastate conflict as well, and is more subtle about the multiple dimensions. But certainly we need to send in the anthropologists um, and maybe not send in the historians, but they can send us the information and then we'll, we'll, you can make sense of them anyway. Now, you're a real international historian. I'm just an intellectual historian for these purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think three, these three last questions. Mm. So you, you were just behind Matthew Newman. Mm. Mm. You'd like to take the floor and then... Perhaps we'll take three in a row, shall we? Mm. That's, that's good, yeah. Yeah, okay. Collect so them together. Thank you. And then the, the question you Okay. Hi. Uh, you've suggested throughout your talk that one of the reasons we should study civil wars is that this might help us to prevent them. Mm. Uh, I must say this implies a conception of history as a laboratory which mm. offers lessons which I find doubtful. I, I tend to think the vast imponderables of any historical event 
make such, make such precise mm. prediction impossible. Mm. And so I was wondering, first, if you could clarify a conception of history mm-hmm. and say whether you do believe it offers lessons, mm-hmm. and second, uh, what those lessons might be. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually sort of follows on from this first question, but you, you talk about Hobbes as a Levithian. Could the historical fraternity become the 21st century Levithian and rather than bring just pure force as Levithian did, can we come with some sort of moral authority as well to find out these solutions in order that history can learn some lessons or rather we can learn some lessons mm-hmm. from history? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, actually, I wanted to ask an historical question, yeah. um, if I may. Um, David, Francis Lieber seems like a crucial figure in this story insofar as he is concerned not only with codifying the idea of civil war, but, of course, as you suggest, codifying – he's concerned with the codification and institutionalization of international law <laughs> at this time. And clearly, to de- define what civil War is um, it, it, it is important to define what international wars are, but the the, the why Lieber seems sounds like he is so crucial to me is that the momentum b- b- behind what he and his generation did in international law continued. But as you say, what he did uh, in his codification of, of, of the laws of civil war stopped dead. Now, why? So that, this is perhaps an unfair question, but why? Why did why did the momentum continue on one of these fronts and not on the other? Is it is, was was the discipline of international law at this time still sufficiently porous that it it, uh, it was able to to consider these kinds of mm, questions mm. and then subsequently became less so? Or mm. what, what what happened? Mm. Yeah, just to take that more precise question first before I come to my philosophy of history, I'll then be lucky that we come to eight o'clock and I'm cut off before I have to uh, deliver that uh, uh, to you. Um, I think it's partly because of the anomalousness, as I I mentioned, of the American Civil War, that it doesn't carry the characteristics of subsequent conflicts and hence uh, those specific parts of Lieber's Code which are generated to describe civil war particularly don't immediately carry over, Uh, though there is some evidence um, that, uh, for instance, in later U.S. Army manuals in the 19th century, for instance, they still, main, they still retain his definition without really thinking about it or carrying it forward. It becomes a kind of fossil vestige uh, in that sense, just as a definition, even though it's so clearly tailored specifically for the case of the U.S. Civil War. And again, as I pointed out, not even very well for that, and that might also explain why um, it doesn't have um, that, that subsequent uptake as well. And I think even Lieber doesn't really have much faith in the definition the gyrations he goes through, the revisions that he then makes to it to try and get it into a final form don't really please him uh, or his superiors, which I think I I take as a key example of just how difficult it is to pin this beast down, to distinguish it, not so much necessarily as an either-or, but if you need a clear definition, it's very hard to provide one which can define a civil war as distinct from other kinds of conflict. It's easy to think of the imagery of civil war or the memory of civil war, but a definition of civil war is much harder, and this is, again, where I would put in a critique for the political scientists and say, well, yeah, they have to come up with 
apparently neutral or objective criteria then to study civil wars in order to think about not so much preventing them. I think I would, I would just come back to the very first of those three questions. Not so much prevent them, uh, but to try and um, predict their possible incidents in particular places, to be prepared for them, uh, to have some sense of how long they're likely to last and hence what kind of investment decisions something like the World Bank might make. Um, I don't necessarily think historians have a peculiar wisdom uh, on that except um, in the spirit of uh, Matt Connolly's earlier question is to say uh, that these conflicts are tremendously complex and multifaceted, uh, that history will at least, uh, as your question implied, uh, push us in the direction of uh, seeing that multifaceted nature, not necessarily taking the, um, the placebos of the development economists at face value, um, that we'll have to see whether correlations that they can discern over, say, the last 30 years of civil war will continue to be the correlations in, in the future. We can think forward a bit from that, but um, as we all know, um, predictions are extremely hazardous, especially for those of us who are rooted in the past and coming back to Duncan's question, you know, walk, walking backwards, always looking, looking back at the past. That way you end up uh, uh, like, so like Socrates in Aristophanes, falling into holes um, uh, while you're um, uh, look, looking for something else. Um, are historians going to become uh, Leviathan? I don't think so. No, no. Uh, we can certainly study uh, Leviathan, and many of us in this room, in fact, do do that. And at the heart of that uh, is... Um, Hobbes's fear, Hobbes's contention about civil war, the nature of civil war, and how um, the, the only uh, sound, and this is truncating extremely brutally, but the only sound reason for uh, politics and the security created by the state is to avoid civil war, that it's an ex the extreme case. Um, and I think there's a longer story to be run about the interaction between the idea of civil war and the idea of politics um, uh, from even the Greeks, let alone the Romans forward, of which um, Hobbes is simply a part. But that's a subject for another and uh, probably much more technical lecture. But uh, thank you for your indulgence uh, as I've sp spread my wings beyond my normal comfort zone as a historian. But uh, the, the quality of the questions has been a, 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 a real tribute and a real pleasure. I'm very grateful for them. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.